0: Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. And welcome to our new playbook series, sharing a deep dive into specific subjects so that you can walk away with a playbook to implement into your private equity firm or PE-backed portfolio company. Thank you to our next guest for sharing their proprietary knowledge to help the private equity industry to grow. Welcome back to Jay Goldman, co-founder of Sensei Labs, and coming back onto the podcast to do a special edition in our deep dive session, I'm going to be covering the endless topic and endlessly discussed topic in private equity and value creation. So
0: welcome back, Jay. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be back again. Perfect. So for those of
1: you that don't know who Jay Goldman is with there's in the show notes, there is the referral back to the initial uh, podcast that Jay did. that tells you all about what he does at Sensei Labs. It tells you all about, we touch on value creation, we touch on orchestration as well as various different other bits and pieces. So please go back to our podcast and check that out before you listen to this one, because uh, this is a big, deep dive into value creation and giving you guys the, a bit of a playbook to walk away with. And that's the goal of these conversations. So Jay, we covered it a little bit in the last podcast, but let's just kick off your perspective. The questions you get asked about value creation and just give us an insight into your interpretation of things, please.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a very interesting time, I think, from the perspective of value creation. It's been for many years in the age of cheaper, even free money, Sort of a checkbox. You have to have a value creation team and you have to be able to say, of course, we do value creation and we add lots of value during that process. But that wasn't really the primary driver of the results that you were able to achieve. It was probably a lot of financial engineering, a lot of maybe expense headcount reduction, and then exit at a better than interest rate sort of return. And that was really the business of a lot of funds for the last decade, maybe even sort of decade and a half. And now as rates go up and the cost of capital goes up, the ability to return on that has changed in the profile of the activities that you have to do in order to get to that return. And it's changed in the composition of maybe team members you need on your side at the fund level and in terms of who you need to put in at the portfolio company level to be able to achieve that. The fundraising profile has changed in terms of what LPs are looking for. If they're going to put some funds into your Uh, into your fund in terms of what they're looking to know upfront about your ability to create value, especially from a sort of durable, repeatable perspective. It's changed in terms of the hold times that you might have on assets, especially if you had made investments before interest rates went up and you now have maybe a, a different challenge ahead of you than you had anticipated. And it's certainly changed on the buy side when you're in increasingly competitive acquisitions transaction conversations against other PE who might have a better value creation proposition for the current owners of a business. So lots of those aspects really across the full spectrum of what private equity does have changed in light of interest rates going up.
1: Uh, Appreciate that. And yes, we've seen a fundamental shift in uh, certainly the cost of debt, which obviously uh, from a leverage buyout perspective is incredibly important for private equity firms. So what do you kind of see is, so as firms start to move towards that value creation piece, and it is an overused term in the in the industry, it's a lot of buy and build, a lot of uh, non-value creation coming from the private equity firm and you know, just organic growth of the organization. What are you seeing the private equity firms are having to do to get on this value creation path or at least start to believe what they're, they're selling?
0: It really depends on how you think about the term value creation, right? I, I think you're getting to to that exact point in the sense that what does it mean to create value? And so if we're specifically just looking at this from an enterprise value perspective, so we have an asset as part of our portfolio, and let's just say for round numbers, we paid $10 million for this asset, and we would like to exit it at a multiple of that, and so we need to get to whatever that number is gonna be, 30, 40, $50 million on the exit price. So we need to create a certain amount of enterprise value in that before we're able to exit that asset. The ways that we can get to that, and we don't need to obviously do a one-on-one here about value creation, I'm sure the listenership of this podcast is well aware of that. But if we simply look at this as an exercise of creating tens of millions of dollars of enterprise value, then there's a bunch of different ways that we can get there. And some are much easier than others. If all we need to do to get there is create more free cash flow in the business and more profitability, and we can get there through slashing expenses, then that's probably one of the easiest ways for us to do it. It's not necessarily going to actually create value in the enterprise. What we're really just doing is maybe better management than the business has had in the past. And so a lot of the funds that we talk to might be in the business, for example, of looking for mid-tier enterprises that have maybe been family owned or sort of unprofessionally managed. They have grown to a certain scale that makes them attractive, but they don't have what it takes to get to that next level. And so there's an opportunity to come in and sort of professionalize that management team, bring in some outside talent, clean up a little bit. There's probably extra headcount that doesn't need to be there. It's probably not as lean as it could have been from an expense profile perspective. Let's get the you know house in order and the ship shape condition. And that may alone create a significant amount of the value that we need to create. But the question beyond that, especially in an age of needing to return more on the other side, especially to LPs, in terms of what we're able to achieve, is how do we build good businesses? And that's where we get away from the a lot of the levers that might have been used in the past. And we get into having to actually guide our portfolio companies towards being good businesses that are able to grow and to achieve better returns than we might have got just through cost cutting, or maybe, you know, bolt on acquisitions and buy and build platforms and those sorts of things. And I think that's where the spotlight is shifting in terms of the expectation on those value creation teams within PE today.
1: So if we look at what are firms doing? Because we've seen like operator, operating partners, certainly in the US, becoming more uh, predominant or, or right across North America, to be fair. But is is that the kind of strategy that you're seeing at the moment is first thing you need to do is, is bring in an operating partner, proven chief executive, CFO, whatever, from a private equity back perspective, done his exits or her exits, and now wants to go into more coaching consulting type role?
0: Yeah, we see a lot of that. And I think that's a pretty common strategy. And I think it's quite an effective one, although I will say... Not everyone who is effective at operating on their own is born to be a good coach to other people who are effective at operating. There is a, uh, and as you move up in that chain, you get increasingly far from being in the business to being on the business. And so it's sometimes frustrating for people who have been successful operators in their own enterprise or in an enterprise that they were brought into. To get one level removed and have to not have their hands quite as dirty as they were and need to be able to step back into that guided coach role a little bit more and less of a directly involved. So you have to find the right people if you're going to go with that strategy. I've also seen it be effective there to look for former consultants. Consultants have longer played that role of advising and coaching and less directly in the weeds. And so that may also be an effective strategy. Also, they tend to have a broader background across a wider number of companies and potentially industries. And so having had that broader background might give them a little bit more ability to look across a portfolio. At the same time, they've probably been less in the weeds, so they probably have less direct experience. And if you are a fund with maybe more of an industry or geographic focus, it may be beneficial to find operators from that industry or that geography rather than consultants. So you may look at a blend of those. It depends on the scale of the value creation team you're looking to build. If you're looking for one, if you're a smaller fund and you're looking for maybe one person, you may want to go with a bit more of a generalist. If you're building a bit of a deeper bench and you've got more folks that are going to be part of that team, maybe that gives you an opportunity to bring on a bit of a mix of backgrounds as you're looking to build that team out.
1: Perfect. And then once you build that out, what does what is good look like from there? What are you looking for these people to, uh, to do and for, to operate in a business? Or you know, even if it's a private equity investor and you used to be an operator and you want to put some of these value creation processes to work beyond you know, what we coined previously financial engineering, what happens from there?
0: Partially depends on where you are from an investment perspective. So, I would distinguish here in the amount of control that you have over the portfolio companies in terms of how active you can be from a value creation perspective. If you leaned into the majority or even full buyout side and you're going to be really coming in and operating those, you obviously have a much stronger hand that you can play here. If you're earlier stage in the investment cycle, so maybe you're more even at a growth equity stage or even a private equity or a venture capital stage, and you're going to be a board member, certainly, but not in a majority control position, you have a different profile in terms of how much you're able to influence the direction that those companies take more of an advisory role, less of a hands-on role. So if we're talking more sort of large-scale PE here and, and more in the buyout and control position, you may actually be putting a member of that value creation team in as an executive in those portfolio companies early stage. And we see that often with the funds that we're talking to. They're ultimately going to hire into that new port co and they're going to set up leadership, but while they're going through that hiring process, you want to get started on your value creation as quickly as possible. And so you may have a bench of folks that you can drop into a new port co who can come in hands-on leadership role, get started on that value creation as quickly as possible. That's also where you want to be able to ideally deploy a library of templates or you know playbooks that you've used in the past. It might even be part of what your value creation sell is into potential portcos. And on the LP side, having a library of best practices that you've previously executed and can quickly deploy means you can get into value creation a lot faster. So if the sort of typical profile, especially at the larger transaction end is, we're going to go in and it's going to take us a year really to hire in the right leadership, to figure out what this value creation plan looks like, to take our deal thesis, and turn it into actionable plans to set up all of our tracking and everything else, you've lost a year of your old time to getting started on that value creation. And that's a long time if you were on a five-year-old plan, you've lost a full year and now you've only got four years left to actually create the value. So what you really want to do ideally is compress that period down as much as possible. And if that means you've got some folks you can drop in on day one and they're coming armed with pre-existing templates and playbooks that have worked in the past that you can adapt to this portco and then execute quickly. It's just going to compress that setup time and give you more of that hold period back for value creation.
1: Okay. So and you, you talked about some of those templates, what are exact, what's either one or give us multiple examples and maybe we can dive into one and um, deep with you guys what it looks like. But what are some examples of, of those templates that, that can be implemented quickly?
0: So think about the levers that you would typically deploy as part of a value creation plan. Many of them are repeatable across port codes, maybe not 100% repeatable. So you may have a basis for that template and then you may want to adapt. And so let's pick a few examples to look at here. Very common platform platform buy and build sort of play here would be we're going to buy a platform company and then we're going to add bolt-on acquisitions to that and we're going to have inorganic growth and then as a roll-up that becomes a far more valuable asset so very very common play lots of the funds that we talk to this is one of their central pillars and when you think about where the fund itself can be helpful there it's that a lot of the leadership teams that you might be bringing in in those porcos may not have a lot of m&a experience themselves So ability to lean on value creation operations team who can say, we've got lots of experience doing this. So we can help you on the deal sourcing side. We can help you on the evaluation side. We can take you through what good due diligence looks like. We can get to that close. And then we've got a post-merger integration playbook that is going to make it easier for you to absorb those companies and as quickly as possible get to a single operating business that we can then obviously turn around and exit at the other end. That becomes a really repeatable process. It's not gonna be the same every time, but you could get to a repeatable M&A playbook that goes right from that due diligence stage all the way through to the post-merger integration stage. And that becomes reusable as much as possible across those portfolio companies. You can do the same thing with many of the levers that you deploy. So if you have a Salesforce effectiveness playbook, as an example, there's a fairly common set of things you're going to want to look at. There's some consistent data that you're going to want to track. And so you might build out a Salesforce effectiveness playbook that you can then run with each new port and take them through a guided journey of what does that look like to evaluate current effectiveness and then where we want to get to. If you're going to do geographic expansion, also a very common... Uh, lever that we see in value creation plans. We're going to buy a business that is very successful in a particular geography and then we're just going to figure out how to export that success into other geographies. It's a very similar set of steps that you're going to follow there. So how do you build that out as that repeatable playbook that we can now take into the second, third, fourth, fifth geography and continue to expand the presence of that business into those new regions.
1: And if we think about one of these one of these playbooks, the most common one that you see, if you could just kind of Dive a little bit deeper into that. What does it look like? What, you know, what are we talking Word documents? Are we talking utilizing an online platform? Just for anybody that's not using this kind of um, process at the moment.
0: Sure. So we build a platform for doing this. So we have a bit of a self-serving interest here. Our platform conductor is what we call a, an orchestration platform. It's used for orchestrating all of the different levers that you might do in a value creation process. So if you're a private equity fund and you're looking for a portfolio orchestration tool, which gives you in-depth value creation plan orchestration in the PORCOS and then cross portfolio, level orchestration as a fund. That's exactly what Conductor does. And we have a concept in Conductor of fast starts, which is really playbooks and templates that you can use to quickly start and get running on a value creation plan that you're going to execute. And so we have a lot of visibility into this. It's really what we do as a platform. Uh, I would say let's deep dive maybe into that example of the bolt-on acquisitions, partly because it's one of the more common levers that gets used. And also it's a great example of where a template can really help. So think about what you need to do from a due diligence perspective. This is really a set of checklists that you need to follow. And so today, if you think about how most funds might approach that, they've probably got a checklist and that checklist exists in some combination of maybe Excel and Word, where they've just got a list of things, documents, questions they have to ask, and they want to gather all that data. The data maybe in a data room from the potential portfolio company's perspective, but you've got to get that into a consistent format that you're going to be able to use on an ongoing basis. So deal team in that fund is gathering all of this. They're making sure they're crossing items off that list. They're also going to start to articulate a deal thesis here. Why are we potentially buying this? They've got to probably take that to an investment committee and get sign off on it. And so each fund is going to have a different sort of approach to how they do that deal thesis. could be a Word document, it could be a PowerPoint deck and a bunch of Excel documents and, and those sorts of things. That is most commonly what we see today. And then you're going to get hopefully to a close. So we've checked off everything on our due diligence checklist, and we're now ready to buy this portfolio and add it in. So if we're talking here about a bolt-on acquisition, we're at the Portco level, we have set up an investment committee. It's still going to be assessing whether these are the right bolt on acquisitions for us. We are getting to that close pre-close point where we're saying, okay, we've gathered everything we need to close. We think this is a good buy. We're going to get sign off. We're going to now do the close. The close is also a set of checklists. We have to get through a set of steps that are that close. We get to the end of that. We've now closed on that acquisition. Now we have to do a post merger integration. And again, that's really a set of checklists and KPIs that we need to track. We have a deal thesis. Why were we buying this new asset and rolling it in? We now need to make sure that that thesis comes true. So what are our inorganic growth targets from a revenue, additive revenue perspective? Also, where are our efficiencies and our synergies that we're gonna realize as we go through this post-merger integration and we're able to reduce costs and all of those sorts of things? And how are we gonna track that through? And then there's just a bunch of work that has to happen. We have to consolidate IT systems and HR systems, and we have to move all of the employees over to be employees of the new parent company, and all of those sorts of steps that have to happen. Okay. There was a great book that came out um, some time ago. It's called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And he was looking at how, particularly in a medical setting, and, and in this case, it's actually surgery within hospitals can you reduce the rate of reinfection and of readmittance of patients? And so he was given that mandate at the hospital that he worked at. He's a doctor. And so he started looking at all kinds of different ways that you might get there. And what he ended up settling on is checklists. Because when you look at high risk, high stakes, repeatable processes, and one of the examples that he uses in the book is actually airline pilots. So if you're an airline pilot and it doesn't matter whether this is your first commercial flight or whether you've been flying for 30 years as a commercial pilot, you go through a pre-flight checklist every time. This isn't about an ego question of, do you know all the steps that need to be done? It's a question of making sure that you've done all the things that need to be done in the right order. And also from a governance perspective, that you can confirm that that set of things was done. So a tool started to implement checklists within a surgical setting and found that it significantly reduced the rate of readmittance of patients and of infections post-surgery and all of the KPIs that he was looking at. And so those checklists started to be things that you would sort of take for granted you know if i was going for surgery at a hospital i would really hope that for example the surgical team all knew each other and knew what role they were playing in the or but what he discovered is actually that in many cases they were meeting for the first time as they started that surgery and that they didn't necessarily know what role each of them was going to play so one of the checklist items pre-surgery was have the surgical team all introduce themselves and make sure everyone is clear on which role they're playing in that room. One of the other items, which also as a potential patient, I would kind of hope that they were doing already, but apparently weren't, was making sure that all the stuff that went into the patient during the surgery came back out of the patient on the other end. And so you think about things like clamps and sponges and things like that, you don't wanna leave those inside the patient after the surgery. So putting in place a checklist where we make sure that as we're putting things in, we're keeping track of them so we can make sure that they came back out on the other end really increases the, or decreases rather, the infection rate and things like that. So those checklists became a critical part of that. And it really inspired us to think about things like a post-merger integration. Although you would sort of hope that everybody was doing the right set of things here, the truth is it's a really complex process. It's got lots of moving parts, lots of different people who are involved. There's lots of things that need to happen in a particular order. And that handoff point from the deal team to that operations team or that value creation team is a notoriously difficult handoff point in every fund we talk to. It's one of their major pain points because what happens there is the deal team with the best of intentions has articulated a deal thesis and has gathered a whole bunch of supporting evidence and then basically leaves it in a SharePoint folder. And now the value creation or operations team has to try to pick up from that, make sense of whatever documents were there that aren't really structured in any sort of meaningful way have to read that deal thesis and try to make sense of, okay, that's great, but how do I turn this into an operating business? And across a period of time, whether we're talking about a post-merger integration that's been set as a three-year, five-year, whatever it is, period of time, or if we're kind of stepping out of that repeatable MA playbook and just saying, I have five years to create value in this new portfolio company, and then we're going to exit it, you now have to take that deal thesis and turn it into a set of operations that are going to result in the right outcome that you need to get to. It's not dissimilar from that pre-flight checklist for a pilot or from that surgical example. We have maybe less, hopefully we have fewer lives at risk than you know flying a plane and landing it successfully or completing a surgery, but we still have a high stakes, high risk thing that we need to do. And so building this out into those repeatable checklists as part of that playbook becomes a way of ensuring that the right set of things happen repeatedly and that they happen at the right time that we're paying attention to those right metrics. So obviously we're not tracking sponges and clamps here, but we are making sure that if we've said we're going to achieve certain savings targets as part of the synergies here, that we're going to have certain headcount reduction, that we're going to achieve certain growth targets from a revenue perspective, and we're going to be able to do those predictively on the right timeline, that becomes all part of that playbook. What KPIs are we tracking What are the baselines for them? When are we expecting to achieve those outcomes? What's the set of tasks that we need to complete? How are we tracking those in a project plan? What's the governance that needs to be in place to ensure that we are following the right set of steps and that we're getting approvals as we need to get them? All of that becomes part of that repeatable playbook. Sorry to interrupt here.
1: Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grutter. The private equity market is rapidly shifted to a data-driven proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grata.com. Now back to the podcast. We use similar things internally, even when it's just a new employee starts in a business, we've got a whole process that just gets ticked off and checked through. And it means that I'm not inducting that person. It means that it takes the uh, the pressure off the, the seniors and the partners in the business um, for them to be able to execute and um just committed streamline process, even just something, just to here's the template email that goes out as, as part of the merger being completed to, to inform all the staff from it. But here's the information pack that goes out to them. And it's building all those different bits and pieces in it, rather than having it for one business and then as soon as you sell that, it swans off into the into the sunset. It's creating, right, we did this here, let's document it. And then let's uh, let's take that pressure off because it's just such a repeatable model with regards to what P phones do.
0: Yeah. And I think actually communications, internal comms is a great example of something that often gets neglected. And so we sort of think about it after the fact like, oh, right, we need to send an email out and tell people what's happening. Okay, what needs to be in the email? And then you kind of gather people around and you sort of hammer out an email and then it gets sent and maybe it was sent. A week after it should have been and maybe nobody sent it until people started asking questions so i think it's a good example of something that often gets neglected but is actually really important and then if you think about the impact it can have downstream if we do a poor job of communicating this people get scared about their jobs they start looking for new jobs and leaving then we're going to have a situation where we actually can't realize the value that was supposed to come as a result of this transaction so if you look at svb which obviously is sort of top of mind for a lot of people out there right now and the collapse of that bank and then the acquisition of it. Um, the acquisition hasn't been going all that well by for citizens because actually lots of the bankers are leaving. So they've had 40 bankers leave for HSBC. They've had other bankers leave for other banks. And so if you bought it on a premise of, okay, we're gonna take over this business and we're gonna be able to now go and be a technology bank for startups out of Silicon Valley but also out of you know other regions across the US, If you didn't do a great job of communicating to the people who are now part of your team why they should stay and what the value is for them in this, and this is an admittedly rushed example, it's not the normal sort of deal timeline, so they had to compress all of this, but imagine if they had compressed all of it on a timeline with the checklist still in place and they had been able to work through that checklist and make sure they were doing all those things, including internal comms, as opposed to sort of rushing through this and missing key steps there, which might have let them retain a lot more of that talent, it's going to be very difficult to execute on that post-merger integration now without some of those critical folks in place. Uh, We often hear that a lot of this without having it written down is in people's heads. And so what is the risk to the business that this sort of key set of information and processes and how this works in this organization is in the head of one of the people that just left? And that means now we're reinventing that whole process from scratch. And we're having to do a bunch of forensic digging to figure out where are the files? Where's the data? How are we supposed to do this thing? Because it was all in Jane's head and Jane's just walked out the door.
1: And who should we be building out these models? Who do we who do we create that from? We're obviously bringing in people like operating partners. Are they creating those these playbooks? They've probably got some of themselves anyway. Even if they're uh, if they're good enough, they might not have it written down. It might be in here, but certainly utilising that because they're also a risk. You know, they might retire. They might decide that they don't want to be in private equity anymore. They might decide they want to go back into a chief exec role. How, how does that documentation process? Who who has accountability? or What do most firms give accountability and who to?
0: Sometimes it exists already. So you will sometimes see firms have built out over time a set of PowerPoint and Excel documents, sometimes Word documents as well, which kind of represent those best practices. And that's what they hand off to new portcos. And that's helpful. It's better than nothing. Absolutely. But turning those into more of a repeatable process is is the right next step to do if you've done that. Often though, that doesn't exist today, and that's where you're sort of starting from scratch. And so, as you said, it may be in the heads of those folks that you're hiring to that value creation team, and that's great if they're coming in with a past of having done this before, we need to get it out of their head and we need to get it into a repeatable format. There's a danger in this that you build out not enough automation as you're putting this in place. And so really all you end up doing is creating busy work for people. And so you don't wanna end up skewing in that direction. So. If you're going to keep it lightweight and just powerpoint and excel stick with that but if you want to go that step beyond make sure that you're putting in place a platform that is able to automate those in a way that doesn't just create a lot of extra work and as an example of that i'll say you want to think about the source of data and where it's coming from sometimes we put platforms in place with the best of intentions but what we really do is create a lot of work for people moving data between systems manually so great that you've put in place this playbook and the playbook needs certain inputs to make sure that it's working properly. But if what we've done is now make it somebody's responsibility to go copy data out of the ERP or copy data out of third-party systems, do some manipulation in Excel, and then upload it into a new system, we're not necessarily, we may be achieving sort of governance goals, but we're not necessarily achieving efficiency, and we probably aren't accelerating our value creation plan. And every time you add in that manual copying step, you're introducing an opportunity for error. So even with the best of intentions, I might copy the wrong data out of there. Maybe I copied the wrong month's numbers, or I didn't notice. Maybe the manipulation in Excel that I have to do to put it into the new system actually has an error in the formula. And I didn't notice that either. Each time we move between file formats, we're potentially introducing errors in those. So lots of opportunity there to make a mistake and then also bake the mistake into the process in a way that now becomes a repeated mistake. And and sometimes those repeated mistakes compound. So What you want to make sure here is if you're going to go to that step of putting in place a platform, put one in place that has as many integration opportunities as possible, get the data automatically from those other systems. Don't rely on people to do it manually. Not only is it an opportunity for errors, but it's also not the work that people love to do. So you're giving people low value tasks where they are essentially doing something that computers are very good at doing, moving data between different places. You're handing it off to somebody who's less good at doing that and can potentially introduce errors, but also isn't going to love doing that work. Nobody loves building status update PowerPoint decks. Nobody gets up every morning thinking, oh, great. I get to go and build another status update PowerPoint deck. And so try to build in as much automation as you can in doing that. The To your question, Alex, about who should do that, It's often at the beginning, a combination of those folks you're bringing in to do that value creation who are coming in with past experience. So they are successful operators. They may never have thought about this in the form of automation and checklists, but they have it in their head as here's the set of steps you need to take. Let's stick with our example of a bolt on acquisition. Here are all the steps we need to take to evaluate this deal, to get to close, and then to do a successful integration after the fact. So getting it out of their head and and into some sort of repeatable format is key. Some of that's going to come from that leader. Some of that's going to come from places like the finance team. There's a set of due diligence checklist items that we just need to have. And I know what that is. It's going to come from legal. So we want to consolidate all of that into one place. So we've got a single set of checklists and not multiple checklists sort of distributed all over the place. And then some of it is going to come out of that portco leadership as well. And so they're going to know the specifics of maybe their industry or of their business. Maybe they already have a preferred approach from an IT perspective. That's a common example. We want to get everybody into a single platform. Here's the set of steps we need to do. So you might be talking about something as mundane as we're a Microsoft shop and we want to get everybody over into Active Directory and Teams and SharePoint and OneDrive. And we might be buying companies that are using Google Workspace. And so they're in Google Drive today. We need to migrate files over. What's the set of steps that we need to do for that? Maybe you're buying companies that are using Slack and you want to get them into Teams. What's the set of steps that you need to do for that? So it's going to come from lots of different people, but it can all get consolidated into that single workflow and that single checklist with as much automation and integration as possible. So we're not relying on people for those error-prone manual processes.
1: Perfect. So to, to finish off, Jay, what are, you mentioned that due diligence phase of an acquisition-type process and you took in and built, what are the most used from your platform perspective where businesses are coming in and going? What are the most used areas of private equity firms are creating these playbooks and creating these standard operating procedure documents um, to give uh, you know listeners other ideas of where they should be looking at?
0: In terms of features that would sort of fit into that, a lot of building out checklists and workflows So making sure that the right people get assigned a task at the right time with a set of checklist items that they need to go through, might be very fast for them to go through that list because they've actually done this many times before. But this way, we're just making sure that they're checking those items off and, and it's all happening in the right order. So sequencing is an important part of this. Second thing would be KPI and benefits tracking. So think about what are those KPIs? They may be financial KPIs. So we actually have a dollar figure that we're trying to hit, whether that's savings or revenue growth. They may be non-financial KPIs, so it could be something like FTEs if we're thinking about headcount reduction, but actually an increasing area of practice within our platform is also ESG metrics. So we're now thinking about, great, we're buying a bunch of companies here, but we actually have certain CO2 emission targets that we're trying to hit across the portfolio, and we have to think about what those are if we're buying new companies that are bringing that in, and often we may be buying companies that are doing a great job of tracking that today. So we need to think about how we might be tracking some ESG so, environmental piece out of the ESG pillar. We also may have social and governance metrics that we want to track across those as well. How are we doing from a DEI perspective? How are we doing from a governance perspective? How are those metrics getting tracked? So, KPIs are not just the financial performance, but a lot of those other things will end up lost in spreadsheets. You'll have the problem of versioning those spreadsheets. What's the latest version that has the most up-to-date numbers? You have permission management issues around those spreadsheets. How do I give Alex permission to edit only certain rows within this spreadsheet and not other you know, areas within this? How do I ensure that we're all looking at the same set of numbers in a single source of truth? Those are all some of the things that end up moving into conductors so that we can track all of that in one place proper governance structure, proper permission management, single source of truth, know that we're looking at updated real-time dashboards with the latest numbers in them, and that we've only had the right people touching the right parts of this with an accountability trail and a governance sort of audit history behind that. So checklists, KPI tracking, then you start to get into some of the advantages that come out of that. So we often going into large-scale programs today and large-scale relative to the company. So could be large-scale because this is a very large enterprise Uh, for example, the T-Mobile sprint acquisition in the U S was orchestrated on conductor. So you can get right up to that mega merger post integration stage, but large scale may just be disruptively large for the company, even if they're a much smaller company, and this is a critical program for them to get right in those programs. When we get involved, we will often see that status reporting is consuming about 25% of the work effort. So think about all the people that are working on this program. Let's stick with this bolt-on acquisition that we've been talking about. So we've now got a whole bunch of people in the parent company and in the new acquisition, they are all going to be focused on this post-merger integration. Let's say we built an integration management office here, and we're going to have 10 to 20 people that are working as part of this. So if 25% of the work effort is going to status reporting, then you effectively have somewhere between, let's call it two and you know maybe five people who are really effectively doing nothing other than status reporting. All the time that they're working on this program. And that's a huge amount of cost for the business. Inefficiency, status reporting, as I said, is not the thing that people wake up in the morning excited to do. So that portion of the job that those people are doing is really lower value drudgery manual effort that could be automated and could be higher value work that they're contributing towards the outcome of this integration. Automation platforms like Conductor can help take that number down to maybe about 5% of that work effort. So return 20% of that manual effort today into higher value work, better focus and prioritization on the value outcomes that we're trying to build, less error rate, more automation means faster updates of that data. So we're looking at more real-time data when we're making decisions. And all of that contributes to us accelerating that value creation curve and getting to those outcomes more predictably with less risk.
1: thanks. So, so, yeah. I know we shared it on the last podcast, but if anybody was uh, to want to reach out, post this uh, this one. How best do they get in touch with you, cells and Sensi cell Labs, please?
0: Yeah, you can find Sensi Labs online pretty much everywhere that you would look. S E N S E I labs.com that's our website you'll find lots of information there we also run a regular webinar series around portfolio orchestration for private equity companies around enterprise orchestration if you're at the portco level and looking at how do we execute a transformation or value creation successfully so you can find more information about those webinars there you'll find us on linkedin as well we also share information about all of this on linkedin so look up sensei labs on linkedin and then you can find me on pretty much any platform under the name Jay Goldman, J A Y G O L D M A N. So look for me on Twitter or wherever, LinkedIn or wherever else you may want to engage and uh, just reach out. Happy to have a conversation.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for for joining us, Jay, and uh, joining us on this special deep dive playbook session. Very much appreciated. My pleasure. And as always, thank you very much for those for listening. Uh, If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast to be notified of when the next one comes out. And certainly when we continue with our deep dive playbook sessions uh, from there. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.